Good morning. If there is anyone new here today and we haven't met, my name is Liz Vandivort, and I am the associate pastor here. I am so glad and always blessed when I'm given the privilege to speak with you um, on Sunday morning. Uh, Last week, we discussed the holy habits of worship and study. And part of what we talked about was having a heart that is prepared, uh, that's open and ready and soft for what the Lord would have for us. And that's what I pray that you have today as well. Um, But also, we're going to talk about the holy habit of rest. And I believe that the habit of rest undergirds worship and study. Because if we're not properly rested, we can't hear what God has to say to us. So let's begin this morning by going to God's word in Genesis 2. Verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested for all his work And then the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. For six days, God worked, and at the end of each day, he called it good. Then on the seventh day, he rested. And he didn't rest because he needed to. God is certainly capable of working to infinity. But in this space, in this world that he's created, rest is a part of the design And not only did he create this rest, he didn't call it good, he called it holy. It's a piece of what he's designed for us here on earth. But as humans experienced the fall, as Adam and Eve sought to know the knowledge of God, reached for the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they exchanged rest God had given them rest from the beginning, but they they sinned, and rest then became a casualty of that sin. So one example, or I think the most extreme example of this taking place is at the beginning of Exodus, when the growth of the Israelite people became a threat to the king of Egypt. Exodus 1 verse 11 says this, So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So Moses had been in Egypt but then fled And God called him to return to free the people, Moses being an Israelite, a Hebrew himself. In chapter 3, verse 16, the Lord says, Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and seen what has been done to Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of misery. At this point, the elders of Israel listened to Moses, and they rejoiced. They, they said, God has seen us. He has seen our slavery and our oppression. He has come to save. And God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and make the request in verse 18. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. And at this point, Moses wasn't asking for them to be released as slaves. They were asking for three days to go worship God in the wilderness. 
But Pharaoh does not respond favorably. He doesn't let them go for three days. In fact, he does quite the opposite. Pharaoh instructs the taskmasters to stop providing straw for the Israelites to make bricks. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. He's up to the ante, so to say, against God, because he's already oppressing God's people, but now he is boldly declaring he does not know who their God is. But we know from Scripture that the Lord planned to use Pharaoh to prove himself as the deliverer, to prove God himself as the deliverer, not Pharaoh. In chapter 6, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand. He will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God wanted no credit to be given to Pharaoh for the release of the people. Scripture says that it was the Lord who hardened Pharaoh's heart. God was in control of this situation, not Pharaoh. So the Lord gives uh, Moses another message to go back to the Israelites, a message of encouragement similar to before. The Lord has seen us. He is going to release us from our misery. But verse 9 says, Moses reported to the Israelites, but they did not listen because of their discouragement and harsh labor. And this is where I want to pause. They were already slaves. They were already whipped and worked and beaten Seven days a week, endless toil and bitterness. But now their labor and misery had been compounded by the king's demands. It was even worse, and they could no longer hear what Moses had to say from the Lord. And I think God has a message for us here, too. Because we're not slaves, but from time to time we can get overworked. And overwork is a barrier to hearing what God has for you. If you go to worship and go to study in a state of overwork, you're probably not going to accomplish as much spiritually with the Lord as you would if you had come with your regular rhythms of rest. Fields produce more when they rest or when they are rotated. If you go to my house, you will find four furry animals who take a lot of rest in their design. (laughs) And so we're designed that way too. Humans are designed to need a rhythm of rest as God modeled for us back in Genesis 2. We need our rest to keep our hearts aligned with him. So let's press on and take a 10,000-foot view of the Old Testament in this area of the books. Pharaoh would not let the people go, so God empowered Aaron and Moses to perform miracles to prove his power. And then after every miracle, Pharaoh's heart became hardened. He would not let the people go. And these miracles were not good kinds of miracles like I healed Steve Jones today. They were awful miracles. They were things like um, frogs and gnats and flies, plagues that afflicted the people, skin boils, fiery hair, or hail, not hair. Oh, goodness. Fiery hair would be a plague too. Um, (laughs) Fiery hail and darkness. Each plague was specifically delivered on Egypt. These were not worldwide plagues. They were on Egypt. But they were not delivered to Goshen, Goshen was the area where the Israelites lived. On the screen is a map. You'll see that Goshen was a part of Egypt and that that was given to the Hebrews way back in Genesis 45. And I'm going to back up a little actually from Genesis 45 even and talk about um, the context of all the locations here. So um, do you all remember Father Abraham, the guy who had many sons? 
Yes. God made a promise to him um, when he was in Hebron. And Hebron was actually up toward the promised land there, um, but he wasn't owning that land. So he was there residing, but it was owned by the Amorites at the time. And so uh, God says, you're going to own this land. Your descendants will be a possession for you. Genesis 15, chapter verse 13. But he says, the Lord said to him for a certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So Abraham was where God wanted the people to be, but he prophesied that they would be going to a land not their own and to be enslaved for 400 years, or that they would be there for 400 years and enslaved for a period of time. Excuse me. So the Lord had promised Abraham descendants before he had them. Him and his wife were quite old, um, but they did have children, uh, of which one was Isaac through his wife Sarah. Isaac then fathered Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons, Joseph, received a dream from the Lord about ruling over his brothers. And you could about imagine how good that went when he shared it with his brothers, right? So they got really mad, and they sold him into slavery. And the slave masters who took him took him down to Egypt. Joseph became eventually released and became a powerful leader in Egypt. And ultimately, he reconciled with his family and brought them to Egypt, saving them from the famine, and persuaded Pharaoh to give them a place to live in Goshen. Goshen was the place that God placed them, that he had reserved for them. He blessed them. He made them numerous. This recap brings us back to them becoming a threat to the king of Egypt. It's hard to know how long exactly they were in oppression, in slavery. We know they were there for 400 years, but we don't know how long exactly they were slaves. We do know, based on Exodus 1240, that now at the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. I'm a numbers girl. So I tried to pin this down a little bit better, try to figure out how long they were in slavery and how many generations were there. And the reality is we don't exactly know. But we figure it's probably three generations because Moses was a descendant of Levi, and Levi was one of Joseph's brothers. So three generations were between Moses and, um, and Joseph. And after Joseph died, the new king rose to power, and Scripture says that Joseph meant nothing to him. Joseph's favor really rested within that king that had been there at the time. So if we figure he was there for, or they were there in slavery for three generations, that's probably, well, certainly, over 100 years. So let's take a moment to put this in perspective. If you think back on your own lives, at least those of you who are older um, than five, um, how much can you remember of your Uh, life from 5 or 10 or 15, 20 years ago. Last week, we talked about our minds being finite. They have an end to them. And as we continue to take in new information from the world and from our experiences, details have to go out. So we don't remember everything from 20 years ago. 
And now, think about how much do you know of your parents' lives? So your parents, of course, have to recount to you their experience, and they're recounting it to you based on their memory. And let's back that up one more generation. What about your grandparents? Assuming that you weren't closer to your grandparents than your parents, you have to rely on the stories from their memory that were passed from your parents to you, and how much do you know about their lives? So if we think about at least three generations being in Egypt, I would venture a guess that the children who were released from slavery knew very little about having habitual rest and worship in the Lord because they had been enslaved for so long. This is critical to understanding why God commands the Sabbath so strongly. So let's hop back to those plagues for a moment. I didn't mention that tenth and final plague, the death of firstborn males. Before this plague, Pharaoh got so mad at Moses, he said, get out of here, and if I ever see you again, you're going to die. To which Moses replied with God's word of the death of the firstborn. And he says this, there will be loud wailing in Egypt, worse than there has ever been or will ever be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. In each plague, the Lord provided grace to his people in the land of Goshen. So every plague, he protected them where they lived. And the night of the last plague, the Lord instructs the Hebrews in their first Passover meal to wash their doorposts with lamb's blood so that the angel of death would pass over their homes. Their firstborn males did not die. And Israel was distinguished from Egypt. He instructed them to celebrate this meal again when they entered the promised land and then every year after that. He was starting to build in rhythms of rest again. He was redefining his people, calling them out and making them different from the world around them. In Exodus 20, the Lord gives his newly freed people the Ten Commandments because, of course, Pharaoh eventually did let the people go after the death of the firstborn males. So God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He's saying, remember, you were part of a land that you did not own. You were slaves there, but it was I, the Lord, who has redeemed you and saved you. And so you, as an Israelite community, you are different because you're God's chosen people. Sabbath, out of the Ten Commandments, is the fourth and longest commandment, which should get our attention. And God says it this, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no, not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Pardon me, I'm overcoming a cold. (laughs) Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, and Shabbat means rest. So each week the Lord was saying this, remember the rest day, and keep it holy. The seventh day is a rest day to the Lord your God. So it seems like in the command that those two sentences should have been enough. God told us what to do. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven is rest. 
I got it, right? But he knows better. He knows that the corruption of the world, the, the trading of uh, the knowledge of God for sin, it would corrupt rest. And he knows our temptation to overwork and to overlook it. So he continues making that command even longer, and he says, hey, remember the rest day. Don't work. Nobody work. Not you, not your kids, not your uh, servants, not your animals, and not even anybody who's visiting with you. Don't work. He's making it really obvious. Remember, I rested on the seventh day, and I've made it holy, he says. Can you imagine working seven days a week for all of your life? An Israelite would have been saturated in this pattern of hard work, labor, bitter toil, all around them for generations. And then the Lord freed them. They walked out. They plundered the Israelites when they left. God made them favorable to the Hebrews, Scripture says. And so when they left, they didn't even really have a need to work immediately, right? So they've got their unleavened bread that they've took, and they've got all their riches and spoils and cattle and and whatever else the Egyptians gave to them. But I'm going to guess it probably wasn't so easy for them to just walk out and do what God said. Maybe some of them were so tightly wound in this pattern of work that they couldn't let it go. Maybe they couldn't sleep. Maybe they were full of anxiety or worry that they should be doing something. Maybe they were unable to fully rest. Do those things happen to you? Because I know they happen to me. Sometimes when you're so busy and so overworked and so overwhelmed, you can't, you can't sit. You've got to get up and move. And I have a term for this because it is something that I struggle with and a few other people who are close to me. I call it the working disease. When you're not caring for yourself and you're being mindful of the rest and needed for, not being mindful of the rest needed for you to function as God designed you, it's like you're on autopilot. You're constantly round. You're always running. You can't sit. You can't leave a dish undone. You can't leave a project. You can't sit around the house. You're always trying to find something to do. No rest for the weary, as the saying goes. And when I'm in this place, my patience is super short. And the people who are around me don't get my care and don't get my attention. And doing the job and getting the thing done is the most important thing. Maybe that's what happened to some of the Israelites. Maybe some of them were sleeping excessively for days because their bodies had been so robbed of the rest that God designed within them. Have you ever had that crash following a season of high stress or overwork? I have. And after that happens, it's kind of like I might not sleep well for a while. I might be waking up early because I know I have to do something. But when I finally get that day of freedom with nothing scheduled, I sleep a long time and I wake up completely disoriented. I have no idea what time it is. I'm somehow still exhausted. And I usually have a sore back because when you're in your mid-30s and up, I guess that's normal. (laughs) 
So for me, mentally, that can look like a period of apathy or disengagement. There's just nothing left. I'm just tapped out like, I need time to rest. My self needs time to regenerate. Sometimes, for me, that can look like a time of maybe even mild depression. My brain has a limit. My body has a limit. And God knows that because he designed it that way. We were designed to require rest. So don't hear what I'm not saying in this message today. We all have hard seasons in life. And I know that some are harder than others, and sometimes we lack good options for rest. One example that comes to my mind is, is when I've walked with people who uh, are, are caring for a failing loved one. It could mean managing your own household and also visiting that person, arranging care for that person, um, eventually maybe even uh, doing funeral plans and estates. I get that. That's hard because there's an urgency. There's a need to be there for that person and as they go to be with the Lord. Pray for the Osterheis family as they're walking through this season right now. There's not a lot of good options when there are so many things to do. But the need for rest still exists. You have to find time somewhere, somehow, in any little bits that you can find to build in rest. Not only did the Lord command a regular seventh-day rest, but he built in other forms of rest throughout the year and over the course of many years. Leviticus instructs the people to hold seven festivals a year, often beginning and ending with Sabbath days or including another Sabbath in it. And every seventh year was a Sabbath year, and these people did not sow the land. So whatever they had uh, that came up naturally from what they had planted in previous years, that is how they survived on the year seven. In the seventh year, God also instructed them to release all slaves, to send them off with liberal supplies, and remember that he had rescued them from Egypt. So no slave, at least rightfully treated within the Hebrew community, would ever be a slave longer than seven years. Every 49 years, or the seventh, seventh year, was a year of grand jubilee. And in that year, they celebrated um, that all debts were forgiven, and any land that had been sold was returned to its rightful family. And these rests were cumulative, and that's why I've illustrated them there in, in hierarchy, because on the 49th year, they celebrated not only jubilee, but also the Sabbath year, the Sabbath festivals, and the Sabbath weeks. What an awesome year. You weren't sowing the land. You released all your slaves. All your land was returned if you'd had to sell it. You got to still rest every seventh day, and you just enjoyed what God had to give you. And that required trust, of course. But what a year of rest. The instruction of Sabbath, along with many other instructions, was vital for God's plan for people to live in the land that was promised to Abram's descendants. This was God restoring some order and rest to his people, giving them back a little bit of what they lost in the Garden of Eden. And they weren't suggestions. The Lord is serious about instructing his people. Leviticus 26 includes two sections, a reward for obedience and punishment for disobedience. In the reward section, he specifically calls out Sabbath and says, Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. 
But in verse 14, he lays out heavy consequences for disobedience. So let's take a look at some and see how bad these are. Verse 16, I will bring upon you sudden terror, wasting diseases, and fever. You will be defeated by your enemies. I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride. I will multiply your afflictions seven times over. And if when you are exiled from the land, all the time that it lies desolate, the land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived in it. I picked just a few. There are 25 verses of stern warning to his people about observing his commands, of which Sabbath is a, is a huge part. And wouldn't it be great, with such explicit instruction, if the people had followed his commands, observed the Sabbath, set up no idols, and worshipped only God, and forever lived in Canaan? It'd be wonderful. But that's not what happened. The Israelites started by not driving out all the inhabitants of Canaan, and so the inhabitants who were left there deceived them and led them to worship idols. Israel had times of faithful obedience to the Lord, followed by times of increasing disobedience and idolatry. And this escalated to the point where, just as God said, they became a conquered people. They not only lost one, two, three battles, eventually they were an oppressed people again by the nations that were around them. And then God left them silent with no prophet, for no word came from him for over 400 years. All of those years with no prophet, the Jews tried. They tried to fulfill God's law. They had periods of calling people back to Jerusalem to follow his commands. And in many respects, unfortunately, the pendulum swung the wrong way. They had taken God's laws and turned them into 613 burdensome performance-based rules. Remember when we talked last week about worship and study and how it needs to come from a heart that is right with God. Following the law was not right in the way they were doing it. Their hearts were not right with God. There were new laws for new situations. Every time a situation came up, they'd create a new law. No discernment of God's will within the commands he had given, and there was no accountability to God. It was all accountability to man. It was completely devoid of a heart that should be devoted to God. And yet God did not fail them in his promises. He did not forget his people. He had hidden his hope in his word, the scrolls of his prophets, Isaiah 43, 19 being one of them. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. God has a new way to bring rest and deliverance to his people. A solution to fulfill the laws that humans could not follow. A solution that is now available for the entire world, not only for the nation of Israel. His solution for salvation and for Sabbath is Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Pharisees had made work of following the Lord hard. Because work in itself is not bad. God worked for six days before he rested. But this work was 
heavy. And it was soul-crushing. What would you think about this church if you came in and whoever stood up here interrogated you about your week? Did you shave today? Did you go to the grocery store this morning? Gosh darn it. How about your daily prayers? Did you say them yesterday? I got to know. I got to know if you did it. 613 laws to follow. But Jesus says to love and follow him is not a burden. It's easy. Yes, fighting to rest, fighting to set aside the time, to to even come here today and sit in these seats, that's a task. It's a discipline, but it's a discipline that returns to you rest. Whatever you do on your Sabbath, whether that's today or if you have a Sabbath that needs to fall on another day, whatever you do that refreshes your soul and encourages your heart, to return thanks to God is a blessing of Sabbath rest. They got lost in the 613 rules about the do this and don't do that. And I know that it's so hard and there's so many hours and there's so many things to do. But we can't get lost in the details because we need to be prioritizing God above our daily lives. Of course, we have jobs, our occupations sometimes demand more time than others during some seasons. There's kids' sports and birthday parties, library learning activities, and whatever we think we have to do to give them the best opportunities to excel in life. And then there's housework and yard work and work and work and work and work. And if you let it, everywhere you turn, you will find work. If it feels like work, it's not Sabbath. If it brings you rest and turns your heart to God, It is Sabbath. And what does that work and busy life return to you anyway? Is its yoke easy? Is its burden light? I don't think so. Can you trust your boss to guard your heart and to refresh your soul? Will those social experiences for your kids or a tidy house uh, draw your family closer to their maker, to the one who gives them eternal life? Trust the Lord with your resource of time, and what you give to him in faith, he will return to you in overflowing measure. Trust your good father with your heart and your soul, that he who designed it knows what it needs to thrive. Trust the Lord's promise to return blessing to you, and you will be fulfilled when you build in time to devote to him rest. I know there's seasons where choices are hard. Sometimes the needs are far beyond what we have time to give. The the Pharisees even scolded Jesus for eating and healing on the Sabbath, but he says they missed the point. Do all that you do for the love and glory of God out of reverence for him. Keep your Sabbath as best you can, whenever you can, and the Lord will bless you if your heart is rightly aligned with him. The Lord does not want the legalism of the Pharisees. He wants our hearts that are turned to him. So everyone here in the room today, and if you're watching online, we have a moment to take a rest, to taste and to see that the Lord is good. So we're going to pray slowly as I close today. And if it feels awkward for you, I want you to think about 
whether you should be doing this more. Because habits build over time, and they become easier the longer we do them. So, close your eyes. Take in a deep breath. Exhale slowly. And allow me to pray us through this time of rest. Father, you are a majestic and wonderful creator. All heaven and earth shout your glory. You designed us for rhythms of regular rest. Help us to trust your good design in our creation. Lord, we are a short-sighted and impatient people. Recall your promises to bless us when we give to you our Sabbath rest. Convict us, Lord, where we prioritize our ambitions over your promises. You are faithful to provide for us all the time we need here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.